Hi, I'm Tom Woods, and you're listening to the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to the show that gets Christians thinking about faith and politics. Get ready to challenge the statist quo, expand your imagination, and tackle controversy head on. Let's stand together at the intersection of faith and freedom. It's time for the Libertarian Christian Podcast. Welcome to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute. I'm your host, Doug Stewart, and I have Norman Horn with me this time to answer some serious questions that are coming from some of you via our Facebook page, our by email, our Facebook group. And uh, there were some pretty good questions that we want to address. We feel like there's a lot of heart put behind uh, many of them in terms of, you know, like, hey, how do I do the right thing here? Um, you guys ask really good questions. Yeah, no, you do. And we do this about every four to six months. We have like kind of a Q&R. And so we're going to give you our feedback and thoughts on on some of your questions. So we're going to start off with it's Mike. Probably, well, it's probably important here to note that, you know, we are not the be all and end all of any of these things. And we definitely encourage you to, you know, to, to go out there and do your research, do your homework. You know, there's a lot of things you can read and study up on to, to learn more about the economics, to learn more about the theology. We'll do our best to guide you, but this is only the beginning. Yeah, that's well said. So our first question comes from Mike. With the non-aggression principle, how should we respond if there are efforts to seize our means to defend ourselves and our families? So what Mike's sort of commenting on here further in the longer form of the question is that he wants to, you know, not duck his moral obligations to do what's right, uh, just being out of fear of repercussions. So what do we, what do we think about that? There's, there's a lot that's tied up in there. Um, number one, I think that at least as it pertains to America, I'm not too worried about this, uh, just because the, the kind of obvious implication here is the possibility of, you know, the government coming in and taking people's firearms away. Well, I've got news for you. I don't think that's the big risk here <laughs> because, you know, we've, we hear this every time, especially when, say, a, you know, frankly, when, oh, when there's concern about a Democrat becoming president or something like that. You know, people were saying this about, uh, about Barack Obama in 2008. But I, you know, we were there for that, right? And that went, in fact, that actually went less than nowhere. Uh, that concern went less than nowhere. In fact, it's arguable that, that in some respects, uh, gun rights actually got better. Uh, during those years. I know that sounds kind of crazy to believe, yeah. especially when, you know, right after, I remember very distinctly uh, after the, in the months, right after Obama was elected, gun sales actually skyrocketing, first of all. Like, mm-hmm. and it's, and it's really hard to round up guns. I mean, like it, it is really difficult in this day and age, especially to round up guns. Uh, so I'm not too worried about that, but, but let's just say, you know, look, okay, if there are efforts to seize the means to defend ourselves and our families, that are made. It doesn't mean that you are without recourse, um, because number one, you know, there's a there's always other means of defense. Um, you know, there's and plus your 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 ultimate like yes, it's important to be able to to defend oneself. I get that, but your ultimate hope is not in your weapons of warfare, right? Right. Uh, your ultimate hope is in is in a place and where your citizenship is truly held, not in these United States, but in heaven. So like in the end, yes, it is a risk, but I don't think it's a great risk. And even if the worst were to happen, we're, we don't put our hope in either in princes or in our weapons of warfare. Yeah. So that's uh, that's where I stand on it. 
So one of the concerns I think my somebody like Mike would have is in you know in hearing all this. And and by the way, if you want to get into the you know ethics of nonviolence, we have about five episodes on that with different people to talk about those things. But the idea here is that, well, what about my responsibility to protect my family? You know, I've got three kids and a wife, and I need to be sure that they are protected. I need to be sure that they are, you know, kept alive. I mean, I'm not I'm not negligent when it comes to them playing out in our driveway or anything like that. So why should I be negligent if it comes to, you know, violence, especially violence from the state, where it could be a lot more difficult to sort of defend against that kind of thing? So I think there's a responsibility that a lot of people have to, or that, that a lot of people feel that, you know, they see this potential thing coming. And it's one thing to say, and, and I agree with you, that it's, it's not, it's probably not going to be a big deal in the United States. It might in a couple generations, possibly. It might in certain vicinities or uh, states and, and regions of the United States. But I think by and large, you're going to be able to find a way to be in a location, it might not be easy, but be in a location in the U.S. where you will still have your rights intact. You know, that could mean a number of different things. Uh, But I don't personally fear or worry about my neighborhood being attacked or, you know, vandalized or burglarized or any of those sorts of things. And so I feel relatively safe where I live. Now, I have the luxury of living in a place that I feel safe. Not everybody quite has that luxury. So, Having rights taken away, you know, like gun rights, that's one way to look at it. The other is you do still have the right of movement and you can move to a safer place. You can move to a different state that doesn't confiscate your guns. Like if you live in Chicago, you can move to Texas. That doesn't make it easy, but it is an option. And so I think freedom of movement within the United States is probably a big plus here in terms of like, what are your options when this kind of thing happens? One thing that has been sort of very clear and obvious in 2020 is the need for some sort of federalist type governance. And and, the, and there's pros and cons to it, but there's only so much the federal government can do fast enough. And so that's where the states the states really come in. So that's, that's kind of a long and rambling answer to one option is that you can move um, and you can find a, an alternative. And, you know, for now, while things are still not, deeply threatening in terms of, you know, our safety and, you know, the government coming and taking, you know, taking away our livelihoods. I would say prepare for what what other option you might have. And maybe that means moving in 15 years versus, you know, having to not think about it for 15 years and all of a sudden, oh my goodness, now now I'm stuck with, you know, this situation I don't want to be in. So plan ahead, uh, if you will, and, you know, follow Jesus in the ethic of nonviolence. So don't look to something that's violent to be your protection. Find as many other ways to do that before you resort to the last resort. That would be my answer to the question. And of course, Mike, if we were sitting around a table in a hotel lobby because we're all at the same, uh, at a libertarian conference and we're talking about these things, we would have a further discussion about your concerns and other people would chime in and this would be a much more lively discussion. But based on, based on the question and based on what we've, you know, hear from other people in terms of their concerns, that's, that's where I would answer it. So our next question also from Mike asks, also with this principle being this uh, about means of uh, defending ourselves and our families and whatnot, in the case of the U.S. being attacked at something like Pearl Harbor, what would be the appropriate response? And he also adds that, you know, he agrees that war should be avoided, but he's not sure how, if something like that happened today, what should be done? 
Doug, where do you, where do you stand on this? Well, I realize that you're you're using one particular example as like, hey, how what what should the U.S. do in this particular case? And you're using Pearl Harbor. And my first answer would be, well, if I was president of the U.S. during <laughs> oh gosh, the the year is evading me. Um, <laughs> yeah. Whatever year Pearl Harbor was attacked, we'll just say in, in the forties. Yeah, sorry guys, um, my my history. Uh, and I used to, I usually know this. If my son asked me this morning, I probably would have been able to tell him. Um, so FDR provoked the Japanese through sanctions and other things. It was not unknown. This is one of those things where it's not even quite a conspiracy theory anymore. That there was ample evidence that this was about to happen, and that the U.S. provoked it. So what would I do? I wouldn't provoke other nations to attack us. Um, Follow the George Washington principle, you know? (laughs) Yes. Peace, commerce, and honest friendship with other nations. (laughs) Yes. This is why free trade is super important. Um, A little aside here. This is why free trade is important, because when goods can cross over, it usually means that war does not. So that that, that aside, okay, so what what would the United States do? Well, Honestly, and and I'm going to answer this by a little bit of a story. One of the reasons I became a libertarian before I even knew what a libertarian was, probably by about three to four years, was right after 9-11. I remember, you know, thinking that we were a Christian nation or we should have been or, you know, we started as one, et cetera. And George Bush, you know, good God-fearing Christian man, you know, he's president during 9-11 and it occurred to me that if we were really Christian and if George W. Bush was truly acting as a Christian in terms of following, you know, the way of Jesus, that he would say that retaliation against Al-Qaeda and against Osama bin Laden would not be the way that we would act, that we would forgive and move on and pursue peace. Now, I was not against war at the time, but for some reason that was just kind of like, well, well, if we were a Christian nation, that's that's what we would do. We would forgive them and we would try to, you know, do whatever we could to help those who were being, you know, recruited to be terrorists and so forth. And we wouldn't provoke people in the Middle East. Now, I didn't know any of the libertarian type stuff that I know today about how we've been agitating the Middle East forever, or at least since the 60s. So anyway... What I would do, I mean, if I were in charge, how would the U.S. respond? I would say we would, we should ask the question, and this is Christian or non-Christian, we should ask the question, how did this happen? Why did it happen? And did we do anything to provoke it? That's kind of where I would start. I don't quite have an answer as to what we should do, but the answer is always less violence. And you always, you always have to calculate both sides of the balance sheet by going up, you know, going against, going to war, um, I, I realize World War II is is a definitely a different situation in terms of like the broader question, but this particular question is you know what do we do if we're attacked? You know what? How should we respond? And I would say that whatever commits the least amount of violence and demonstrates that we will not stoop to the level of the terrorists or the attackers, and we will rise above the ides of war. That's kind of where I would answer it. Norm, how about you? Yeah, this is a difficult. It's a difficult question for a, a number of reasons, and a lot of it comes down to this, frankly, a bit of mythos around the onset of the Second World War. And I've really come to you know, understand over the last 15 years that really the difference between World War I and World War II was not very much. And a lot of that had to do with... Um, uh, the way in which World War One ended, 
and the way in which that that the punishment of Germany ensued there, which allowed for ultimately the rise of Hitler and just kept on spiraling out of control. So it's kind of, and then, you know, on top of that, the sanctions that were put on the Japanese at the time, which, uh, which was very much the prompting of the, uh, the attack. Um, it's, you know, look, <laughs> it was wrong for the Japanese to attack. It was wrong for the, for the U.S. to put sanctions on, on, uh, on them. And it's, it was wrong for Hitler to take power and arise. And it was wrong for the conditions that, that allowed for his rise to occur. And it was wrong for the, for the Treaty of Versailles to push down the, uh, the Germans in the way that it did and so on and so forth until we can eventually get back. We can just, you know, keep regressing back into even like, well, I guess it was, you know, wrong. I mean, it was wrong in the first place to have a civil war in America, which it absolutely was. And, and we're, I mean, you can keep going back and back and back on this. And, uh, and in fact, there's a funny little article from Stefan Kinsella that kind of makes this point uh, that you can find. I can't remember off the top of my head, but I'll try and we'll try and find it and put it in the show notes here. Uh, but the point is, it's like statism leads to this stuff. Mm-hmm. Like you want to, you want to know what to do. Don't have a state. <laughs> I mean, yeah. don't participate in this in this vehicle of violence. You want to stop it? Yeah. Don't do it in the first place. So you know, somebody's got to break the cycle of violence, and that I mean, that's on some level, that's got to be. Uh, something that Christians should take upon ourselves is that if, you know, and you can't, you cannot single-handedly do that. Hmm. Okay. But what you can do is break the cycle in you. And so like, it sounds so, I don't know, let me make, make the pol make the political personal here. Right. It's like, this is a, this is a problem because statism is a problem and there's not going to be clean answers to a lot of these things. It, it, the policies that are put in place are just gigantic in, in their scope and they have far reaching implications. And there's not, it is not often that people like you or I will have opportunity to make those big changes. Mm-hmm. But what we can do is change who we are. And, uh, and that I think is the, is perhaps the, you know, the end lesson uh, of getting, of getting, you know, libertarian ideas inculcated in oneself uh, is that there are, you know, there, <laughs> there's a limited amount of things that you can do to affect national and international politics. If you have opportunity, great. Get yeah. principled and get there. But yeah. for now, like this is where we're at. I think there's, there's the short game and the long game. And I think sometimes we think too much about the short game. Uh, and like, oh, well, you know, if somebody attacks us next year or whatever it might be, um, what, what do we do? What's the libertarian response? Okay. Yeah. Or what's the Christian libertarian response? And there's a couple things, of course, or I shouldn't say there's a couple. There's many things. But one thing that is sort of constant is that life-changing, life-focused, what Norman just said stuff. You have to change yourself, which will then, in fact, influence your family. And you might have all the right ideas. You might have the right, let's just just assume for the sake of the matter that libertarians are indeed right on everything, which I realize is weird because we all believe in slightly <laughs> different ways of it, but you know what I'm saying. So imagine that we have the right ideas, right? But people aren't convinced of them. 
and some policy option comes along and we, you know, it's not like we're going to argue people into agreeing with us. But when we actually live our lives, and sometimes that happens, I mean, it's, it sort of happened with me and stuff, but, you know, watching people live their lives with nonviolence, watching people live their lives doing good business, uh, serving the poor, doing all of the things that show and demonstrate the way of the way of Christ, the way of freedom, the way of loving one's neighbor, those things over generations go a lot further. Um, and also you have influence over that. You have influence over your kids, over the people that you know in your church. Um, and so that's going to be how you influence people, not just with ideas. Ideas are very, very important. They have consequences. We, you know, to quote that cliche, but the way that we live our lives is super important because that's what people, I mean, I'm, I'm a dad with young kids and oh my goodness, does it, you know, come back in my face when I don't live what I say I should live or what they should live. And like, well, dad, but you do it too. Um, so living, <laughs> living <laughs> properly and following the Lord in that way is, is, is of course, you know, the best way to proceed personally. So we have one more question from Mike. Mike, thanks for all your thoughtful questions. So in regards to the Marxist socialist agenda that is being pushed, I'm assuming you, what you mean is in like the broader culture and academia, how do we engage this if it continues to seep into actual policy? If they begin in enacting legal penalties for not complying or using force, do we resist or submit? So, Mike, it seems like you feel it's a real threat to our liberty. And while it might be a little overblown it now, it could be a big thing in the future. So it sounds, I mean, in some sense, it feels like this is similar to our first answer or to the first question in that, what do we do when we have to live under a regime that is diametrically opposed to the ethics of liberty and even, you know, Christian, even Christian theology? And for me, I would, I would sort of answer that with one, as Christians, we're not guaranteed that we're going to live in, in, in societies where we are tolerated, let alone celebrated. And so we have to live out our faith in ways that demonstrate who Christ is in the midst of, of the world, whether or not that world is confused about who Christ is or whether they, you know, seem to acknowledge who Christ is. So that's kind of where I would answer it. Um, Norman, I don't know if you have any further thoughts. If you want to be prepared for any eventuality in this regard, read the book of Acts, where you arguably have one of the worst situations for the church in history, where you have the Roman government literally killing them, and yet they thrive. Uh, if, if only we would take that example and be bold and brave in the proclamation of the gospel, no matter what, then no matter what happens, we will be, I mean, we will, we will be satisfied in it. Hmm. Um, nobody knows the future. I mean, that's both an, <laughs> both from a, uh, an economic point of view, that's important to kind of rem remember. Right. And, uh, and then also just from our, you know, the, the future belongs to the Lord. We don't hold it. And so let's just, let's just live out the example of our Christian forebears in every way that we can and not participate in, in the acts of, in the acts of violence that the, uh, that the state wishes us to, to try and, and push, uh, but rather be the vehicles of peace uh, that we need to be. Uh, we don't know what the, what the future is going to hold in that regard, but let us 
resist in the most peaceful manner we can. Amen to that. So our next question, this is a quite different topic, is from Dustin. Why is there such a difference between the Libertarian Party and the Mises Institute? Does Rothbardianism make libertarianism look too idealistic and not practical? Seems like a lot of different sects in libertarianism, and it can become more of a utopian philosophy than practical and pragmatic. So, why the difference? Uh, there's there's some history in there. There's some you know ideology in there. Norm, you know the, a little bit more about yeah. this than I do. So, I, I think it's it's fair to say that there are there are kind of two two camps even within the Libertarian Party, and that somewhat even you know elucidates the difference between the LP and LVMI. Um, so the LP could, again, you might say it could be divided into the pragmatics versus the principled. Um, and I, and I say that loosely, there's principles even within those people who are kind of on the pragmatic side. I don't want to deny that. And there are many Mm -hmm. good people over there, but maybe, maybe a better word would be radical. Uh, and that's most illustrated through two of the, well, the fact that there is even a Mises caucus in the libertarian party. And, uh, and there are other caucuses as well. There's even a Christian Libertarian caucus of the Libertarian Party now, and uh, very good people there. Um, you know, so shout out to them. And so the Mises Caucus and the CL Caucus and whatnot, they take a very radical line that is very much in line with, say, the Mises Institute's, uh, you know, very much a anti-state idea. The pragmatics tend to look at it more at a incremental, that incremental gains in liberty are the way we have to achieve liberty in our lifetime. And, you know, let, let's, be, let's be frank. There are good things to be said about both sides. So, you know, I think that that sort of, you know, kind of illustrates, okay, there is this, there is a difference. Okay, cool. And that goes back really to, you know, even the founding of the LP itself. Um, Murray Rothbard was, in fact, instrumental in the founding of the Libertarian Party. Uh, over time, that uh, became you know, there was some souring of that relationship over time. And that's, you know, it happens. To the LP's discredit, there, especially some of the presidential candidates of the last couple of decades, there have been some issues with them, you know, and there's things to like and many things not to like as well. So why is there a difference? Because there are different ways of viewing how we achieve liberty. Some people believe that getting the incremental approach in place is really the way it needs to work. And there are some who are more, and, and to an extent, I'm going to be more on this side, uh, that it's important to just t- to hold to a radical view of human liberty, that the state is inherently bad, that it doesn't do anything well, and that we shouldn't just go for mere incremental changes, but try to go for uh, as much as we possibly can all at once. And I, 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 like, I'm sympathetic to that, and that's a great goal. To play a little bit of devil's advocate here, there are reasons why we can be accepting of incremental changes, though. And, uh, and that's, you know, I, I think if, if you guys have been around for a while and you remember our fight in Texas against uh, the TSA, what a great opportunity to have made an incremental change uh, and make a difference right then and there. And we did that. And that, you know, I, I was part of the spark of that even. And I'm, you know, I'm very proud of that. Uh, that we were able to make that big of a difference in that short of amount of time, in that in, in, even in that incremental way. So I think there's there's value even in in incremental approaches, but we should always keep in sight the greater goal. Uh, and so that's kind of the that's at least my sort of personal view on it. Mm. Um, and that kind of illustrates also why you know well does, is it <laughs> does libertarianism sometimes look too idealistic and not practical at times? Well, the fact is is that liberty is not uh, liberty. 
while we have liberty ideals, they are inherently practical. And the way we accomplish that sometimes is incremental. And sometimes we go for big sweeping things. I mean, there's a big difference. Like it was not incremental for William Wilberforce to go on a fight against slavery for 20 years in, 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 uh, in England in the late, uh, 18th and, and early 19th centuries. That was not, that was not incremental, but it, you know, but it took him a long time to do it. And he had to have incremental victories too. So, you know, let's, let's, let's admit that there are some good things to be said and let's work together to make those things happen. Now, we should also, of course, note <laughs> that here at LCI, we are a 501c3 nonprofit and we are not endorsing uh, the Libertarian Party in any way here. Uh, that we, you know, we are not to do that and we don't. Uh, we don't support candidates and we're not really promoting any party, but we will uh, herald approaches from you know, a variety of different perspectives and, uh, and, and areas uh, when they are in line with what we believe are our ideal, ideological goals. Yeah, I think that's well said. I, I think for some people, there's the policy aspect. It's like, how do we enact certain policies? And then there's the sort of the online chatter and discussion that you have with people, even though we're not supposed to discuss politics at Thanksgiving, it ends up being talked <laughs> about anyway. And it's like, how do you convince people? Because, you know, if you if you go one way, you know, one variety or flavor of libertarianism, you're just going to seem too idealistic and not down to earth. And people are like, oh, well, that would never happen. And then people don't even listen to you. Whereas, you know, if you have a certain approach to things, they might be like, oh, I'd never thought about that policy before. That makes sense. You know, so, you know, if, for instance, I'll just give you an example right now. It's like the school choice argument. Like, there's a lot more openness right now to parents getting their money back because schools aren't going to reopen, okay? This is an opportunity not for us to say, well, we shouldn't have schools anyway. (laughs) (laughs) We can can make that, but maybe we should get to a better place where parents have more control over what happens to to their money and we could get to that other other place. Um, I did an interview with Corey DeAngelis and he explains the school choice and he even answers the, you know, how libertarian is that sort of model question. So, I guess the the point I'm trying to make here is in a conversational win people over sort of method, you just got to know who you're talking to and who your audience is. And you have to know who you you are in terms of like how you like to discuss things. And so, you know, you kind of need to know both and both, you know, I've told people, I'm like, look, if the way I'm arguing for liberty doesn't appeal to you, there are a ton of different people who argue for liberty in ways that I think are much more attractive and they will start to win you over. Sounds good. Well, that I, I think your question does make sense though. You know, Dustin, that there are, you know, there are, for lack of better words, there are different uh, factions, if you will, within libertarianism. And sometimes just trying to understand uh, yeah. that even, even the the fact that we do have factions is not like a, it's not a downer on us. In fact, it should be encouraging that we're trying to have vigorous debates within our, within our, you know, our lines of ideology yeah. to see what is the best. Um, we need to have that. Let's just be respectful of one another and, and, you know, and we'll get there. We'll get there someday. Yeah. Our next question is from Betsy. I am curious why you think church leaders and elders are following social distancing slash mask slash online service mandates. Some are citing kindness and love for their fellow man, but why are they fearful as we are directed not to live in fear? Why are they listening to the government and the mainstream media that has done nothing but vilified them and does not support their First Amendment rights? Why do they think that all of a sudden the government and the mainstream media have their best interest and their congregation's health in mind? 
Oh, so much to unpack here. Yeah. <laughs> Where do we can, begin? Can open so, worms everywhere. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> so, um, wow. All right. To begin, I would, I might even say that, like, my profession right now is in the infection control industry. And so I've been involved in COVID-19 stuff since definitely before it was on the bulk of this country's minds. <laughs> and, and it's constantly being talked about. I mean, we were, I, I looked back the other day at my email from my company and was looking at like, what was the first mention that we had of, of COVID or, or SARS mm. uh, this year? Yeah, it was back in January. And, you know. <laughs> and I was like, man, it, it seems like so long ago now. <laughs> so your entire but year has... It, so it literally has been. been. It literally yeah. has been. Uh, we've, we've been on this. But uh, suffice to say, it, you know, I don't think that uh, if there had not been a mandate that church leaders and elders would have just not had any type of social distancing or online services or even potentially face masks. Um, because I think that the evidence is there and they, with, if, if so much political capital had not been lost in all of the uh, insanity that has been going on, uh, internally to the fed, the federal government side and through the state sides and through all the things that have been going down and all the mismanagement and all of the, uh, ill-founded ways of going about, you know, dealing with this, uh, that there were perfectly good ways of, uh, of finding, you know, different, different means of handling the problem. And so, you know, I think that it would have been understood that they would have, that churches would have needed to make some appropriate changes. Now, maybe it would have looked different than what we actually have now. Maybe it would have looked a little different, but overall, I'm not sure it would have looked that much different. I know in my state, the governor didn't mandate anything and the churches in my county voluntarily went to online services. Not, not all of them. Some of them still met. Some of them met throughout the whole thing secretly. But I, yeah, I kind of agree with what you're saying there, Norm, because it, it, it goes to show that I think there's a, an assumption that if the state doesn't tell us to do it, we wouldn't have done it. Yeah. Um, and, and I'm not saying, you know, you Betsy are assuming that per se, but I think a lot of people tend to tend to assume that like, oh, well, we'll let people make their own decisions and people who are more statist in mindset think, oh, well, people won't make the right decisions. And we also want to sort of avoid that as well and say, well, people won't make the right decisions. So th the heart, though, of the question is about the whole living in fear, okay? Living in fear, in my mind, isn't necessarily about not taking precautions, okay? So I don't, I don't not speed. I mean, I sometimes speed on the road, but I don't do it because I'm not living in fear, it's not like I'm fearful that if I drive too fast, I'm going to die or something like that, or I'm going to, I'm going to endanger somebody. I mean, sometimes that's, that's good, but I don't know if having, if social distancing and wearing masks and being precautionary is necessarily living in fear. It can be. I think there are people out there who are panicking. They're the ones who yeah. are macing people in open air there. I mean, I, I live on a road that has a lot of people walk because there's only one side and the other side's farm. And so a lot of people, it's just like a nice view and people like to walk on it. And I've seen people, especially early on, they were out walking with masks on. And I'm like, no one's around you. I know I just said a lot of people walk on that. <laughs> I, I, not, not a lot. I just said a lot of people walk on that road, but like, it's not that crowded. 
So I'm like, no one's around you. And I'm like, well, maybe they, you know, in case they come in contact with somebody, they don't want to have to put the mask on. So they're just wearing it or whatever. And that's fine. But, you know, those types of people, you know, assuming that they're fearful is kind of what strikes us as like, oh, you're wearing a mask because you're afraid. I don't think that's the case. And I think it's it's a little disingenuous. Well, not disingenuous. It's a little um, too assuming about why people wear masks. There are people who are afraid. There are also people who are afraid genuinely because they are unhealth. They are um, well, immuno immunocompromised. You know, it's it's funny you even kind of describe that like that, Doug, because I've heard some Christians, and I think erroneously, uh, sometimes. Well, no, it's not entirely erone erroneously, but they'll argue like, well, you, you know, you can't, uh, you, you don't know the motivation of why somebody wouldn't want to wear a mask, and it is. You know, okay, you're right. I, you I mean why somebody maybe, doesn't wear a mask? Exactly. So turn that around. Oh, yeah, yeah. So, you know, it's it's yeah. kind of erroneous to, however, uh, to say like, well, you just understand why somebody would wear a mask. It's just because they're in fear. Yeah. Like that's, that's, a yeah. Bit, that's a bit much, you know? So I, I was out on a hike, uh, oh gosh, like a month and a half ago. And we were um, on a trail that was like a single trail. And we were going through the woods and there was somebody coming the other direction. And they had, they didn't have a mask. They weren't wearing a mask, but they had one in their hands. And so when they saw somebody come, they would basically cover the, their <laughs> face with their mask. And okay, that was, again, you know, Norm just laughed, right? And that was sort of my, I'm like, really? Why would you do that? You're out in the middle. Like, we're literally well, out in the woods or whatever. And then I thought, well, holy cow. What, who, how do I not know? I mean, they, they, they seemed like, I mean, they, by all, you know, external appearances, the person seemed healthy and in shape. I mean, they're, goodness sake, they're out you know, walking in the woods with, with friends. And, but I don't know what their health history is. Who am I to judge them for choosing to wear a mask? And who, why should I even care too much whether or not they're being overly cautious as a, and, and fearful? Like they're taking precautions that they seem to think are, are worthwhile. And so, you know, if we lived in, you know, in Kapistan, right? Where we, <laughs> where everybody was just allowed to do whatever they wanted and we were a judgmental free society, we wouldn't be judging them. So why are we, why are we judging people for that, for this now? Um, I, I do know the answer to that is sort of, well, the state's telling them they need to, and they're just, they're just sheep. Like that's, that's, that's and Betsy, false. I'm not attributing that to you. Uh, just FYI, if you're listening, yeah. um, not attributing that to you, but I've heard that. It's like, well, they're just listening to the state uh, and, and so forth. And Norm, you can explain why that's false, even though, of course, governors are saying mm -hmm. to mask up. Well, it's perfectly it's perfectly fine to understand the reasons why one would want to wear a mask. In fact, it you know going going back to the person you met on the trail. I mean, it's it, it on one hand it is a little silly um, because you know you're out in the open air and so on and so forth, and you can always just move a few feet to the side, and it's not a big yeah, deal. Right. But, but here's the thing: like we shouldn't we shouldn't forget that. Masks are just as much for the prevention of transmission if you are the carrier than preventing transmission from somebody who's around you to you, okay? Right. And that's, like, you, you kind of got to realize that. So, putting so in theory, mask, that person could have known they had COVID. Well, either that or, or they're, they're signaling to you as you're coming down the trail that, like, hey, I respect you. And so, and I'm, you know, so in the event that I don't know that I have it because asymptomatic transmission is real, okay, then I'm, I'm doing my part to protect you a little more. Yeah. Okay. So, yeah, it's not like, an I'm afraid of you. It's I, I am doing my part to protect yeah, you and yeah. myself. So, I mean, that's why I would do it yeah, because like yeah. I, like I, 
I, I believe right now that I do not have COVID, but I'm going to go out in a little while uh, to, to visit with a friend uh, tonight. And, uh, and, and I'm going to at least, you know, wear a mask uh, when, uh, when I'm uh, at least, at least while we're at the table and we're not, uh, you know, behind the beer. <laughs> so, yeah. Right. Um, but yeah, it's like, but that's because that, that's because I'm trying to, you know, do my best to protect my to protect my friend in the event that I have something I don't know I have. Yeah. Like come on. The, the second half of Betsy's question talks about the being told by, you know, by the government, the mainstream media who has done nothing but vilified them and doesn't really have their interest in at mind and you know, I kind of sympathize with that aspect of the question. Um at the same time, at this stage in like how we have society arranged who else is going to tell them what to do? Like, and I don't mean like tell them what to do, but where else are they going to get their information? Like, this is just the, the, it's sort of the structure that we have. And so of course the mainstream media is going to tell them this. Of course the government Who cares what they say anyway about us like this? It doesn't matter. You know, they're they're already against us. Let's just, (laughs) let's just do the best we can with the knowledge that we have. And that's like, who cares what they say about us otherwise? Yeah, it's not, it's not not true because the government's telling you to do it. Yeah, <laughs> like or, or well, you know what I mean. That's like, true. That's true. But also, but also, I'm, with respect to the way in which you know Betsy's putting the question that they vilify us and not and not supporting our First Amendment rights, like the, so what? Like the, they're going right, to vilify gonna us that. and not support our First Amendment rights anyway. That's the way they've been operating. If COVID so didn't them. exist, they, this yeah. would still be happening in some other way. So they'd yeah. still be saying bake the cake, you know, and so on and so forth. Yeah. So like, you know, so again, you, you don't need to fear them like that anyway. So like the, don't don't you don't have yeah. to you do not I, have to live in fear like that either. Yeah, I, I would just say the best way to consider the way the church leaders are doing things is that at least I, I will just say that for my church leaders, they seem to and, and I know that these you know not by name, but I know specifically that in my church, the leadership of at least over a dozen men in leadership there, uh, they mm-hmm. all disagree as many Americans do about the nature of this and about how serious it all is right. and how, and all of that. And they're still being precautionary. And so they're not just bowing to the government, even though they're, you know, they, they are okay. Following doing what the government says you should do is not the same thing as bowing to the government. Cause yeah. if you independently also think it's the right thing to do, maybe you're wrong, but that doesn't mean you're doing it because, Oh, the governor told me to. Here's another thing too, and I was reminded by this by uh, our, our good friend N.T. Wright uh, a couple of weeks ago, and I thought this was a very erudite and good thing to say. You know what? It's not like that the church hasn't faced pandemics before, so if you want to know what it means to not live in fear, maybe we should go learn from our Christian forebears in this regard. You know, there's a there's a mm, you know rather yeah. interesting precedent for how churches are to act in pandemic situations when you look at yeah. you know the Black Plague. Or even go back to the 1920s, or I'm sorry, 1918, and the and the Spanish flu epidemic, which killed a lot more people than than this. Yeah, he actually just published a book called God in the Pandemic. Uh, it's yeah. like six or seven bucks on Kindle, and it, uh, actually he reads the audiobook, which is it's funny because it's probably like. <laughs> The only opportunity you'll ever get to hear N.T. Uh, Wright read his own audiobook. But so it's, it's like a little, be, and it's always better listening to a Brit read it, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's so I I would recommend it. I'm I'm about halfway through it, and I always always recommend N.T. Wright. So what does he what does he say? Has he gotten to the historical church in this regard? He at this point he's going over the you know the unprecedented nature and you know just sort of like opening thoughts. Which by the way, you can actually without paying, you can go to Time.com and read an article they asked him to write. 
um, oh, okay. probably back in like late March. And it's sort of the start of what became the book. At this point, he's going through sort of like, what? how do we react to pandemics should be the same way we react to anything that's major. And then that is look to look to Jesus. I know that sounds super yeah. cliche. And it's been about three but days since not. I've read it. So I am going to, well, it, no, it isn't. But the way in which he's leading us through, like, how does the Old Testament deal with things? And what, how, how did the church deal with things? And like, what yeah. does it look like? And there's a lot of debate over, oh, well, Christians should do this, Christians should do that. So at this point, I, I don't have solid uh, answers on that, but it's definitely well worth it. And it's not, it's, I think the audiobook's a little over two hours. So that's, it's a short book, clearly, because, I mean, he wrote it in like, you know, he probably, if, if one honestly, he probably that, wrote it in an afternoon. <laughs> the man can write like crazy <laughs> well and, and i think it's worth noting like if, if if the phrase look to jesus seems a little trite to you then maybe the rephrase is look to how jesus showed love and mercy to the sick yeah okay May, yep. or, or what even if, if the phrase what would jesus do sounds a little cliche in this in this scenario maybe you can reframe it to what should the church do in the face of uh, in the face of of great sickness like this, I mean we 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 seem to we seem to have this uh, you know this interesting uh, this interesting phenomena that happens in churches all the time, where you know pastors go visit sick people in the hospital at, some, at points, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. Like, is that something? I mean, yes, I recognize that like we're in special situations with uh, with pan, with highly transmissible diseases and whatnot and, and, you know, in pandemic scenarios, but like, yeah, what are we doing in this regard? Yeah. And uh, well, there's also the long-term, yeah. And there's also the long-term, how do we prepare for the next one? And I don't mean the next one isn't like, you know, two years from now, but like, how do we cultivate a culture of, uh, or a church culture of what does it look like to respond to people in need? Um, because this, this has become so politicized and I've gotten caught up into, in it as well. I mean, Nor- Norman knows, cause I send him texts all day long about <laughs> certain things and, and, you know, sometimes they're pretty unorthodox, but it's still, you know, it comes back to how do we, how do we live and follow Christ in a, in a world where we're being told what to do very specifically. And sometimes doing that would have happened anyway, had we really thought about it. But sometimes it doesn't. Sometimes there's there's room for doing the right thing and preparing to do the right thing. And so, yeah, that's kind of where I would answer it. And uh, yeah. One more yeah. question from Yousef. In a libertarian community, who would care for orphans, homeless, and disabled people? Should they just hope for volunteer donations? This is a very common question. And you know, my thoughts on it initially are that this, these kinds of things, you know, getting to a more libertarian society where where things are 100% voluntary or 99% voluntary or whatever. Um, the first thought I have is if, if really all you want your state to do is, and again, I'm just going to say this, like I always say it, if all you want your, (laughs) if all you want from your government is to pave the roads, is to build the roads and take care of those who are destitute, I'm in because we're, we're, we're that again, we're 99% there, but to answer the question more directly, if we got to that sort of 99% um, direction, right? These things don't happen in a vacuum. It's not like, oh, well, let's just stop supporting people who are orphans or stop, you know, helping the homeless and disabled or children or whatever it is like that. Like those things, again, we, we talk about incrementalism. I mean, my goodness, libertarians don't get what they want overnight, ever, okay? So 
it's either an incremental approach or a feels like forever approach. So this isn't going to happen overnight. And eventually we will potentially get to a society where the homeless either don't exist because markets are just that darn good, okay, or people who are disabled can get what they need because markets are so darn good and can provide. And we have a society and culture where people do voluntarily help, okay, and that orphans are taken care of as well. So I would say that because we look to this more holistically, that question almost can't entirely be answered. However, I will say this. Sometimes people will ask questions, well, how would this take place if we didn't have the government making sure it took place? (laughs) We have to look at, well, did the government always do this? And how successful was the efforts prior to government intervention or whatever to actually take care of these things? And it is, I would say, mixed and in part maybe just place of history. You know, 200 years ago, it was probably a whole lot harder for somebody who was disabled to get the help they need than if you were born in a culture today without a, let's just assume for the moment, for the sake of the scenario, that today there's no government assistance for disabled people. I would rather be disabled in 2020 than in 1820. Make sense? So that's fair. I'm going to take a slightly different tack though, Doug. Go Um, for it. Okay. I think that it is rather well established at this point and the data is there. I think the There's some great explanations of this data in uh, humanprogress.org, I believe, as well as Mary Ruart's book, Healing Our World, Mm. where it is demonstrated, and it's completely demonstrable now, that charity increases with prosperity. Strangely enough, and that it goes exactly against the narrative of ultimately, let's say, well, both left and right on some level, you know, the right is definitely, you know, just as complicit in this regard, but the left is sometimes the poster child for, well, if they're rich, they got it on the backs of the poor and uh, they're all evil people anyway. Right, and if they give, it's just because they're guilty or something, they feel guilty. Yeah, yeah, something like that. But this is not true. It is, in fact, much more established that with prosperity and economic growth, charity increases as well. And we are now living in an age where... Even the poorest among us are better off than in every century prior to now, including the 20th century. Hmm. Now, that being said, the government in its programs that try to help the orphans, the homeless, disabled people, etc., ultimately are counterproductive. That, in fact, if they disappeared, if those programs just disappeared, and we've suddenly had in our possession the monies and whatnot that were being taxed and, and, uh, and th- thieved away from us in order to do that, that it would actually be easier to accomplish these goals than otherwise. And that there would be opportunity for volunteerism to, to plug that gap and do it better because the administrative overhead would be less the bureaucracy and the bureaucratic red tape would just go down in flames and it would be suddenly operable to do things that were not possible before. Already, we can see that the private means of doing these types of good works are more efficient and better than what the government does. And in fact, it's, you know, it's arguable and I, and Someday, Doug, we're gonna we're gonna have uh, a person on that to really maybe get into this deeper. I know just the person to do it. That even welfareism, which is, is meant to help 
minorities in certain cases, uh, single mothers and whatnot, that this actually ends up propagating problems rather than solving them. And this is, this is a, like, this is real. Like the data is there and the state is exacerbating problems that don't need to nearly exist in the way that they do now. So I would say that, that it, in fact, that, you know, should they just hope for volunteer donations? No, they're already there and it'll just get better without the government. So I I think that that's actually a, a, a good way of, of addressing it. And this is a great way to probably end our, end our podcast, Doug, here, is that we have a, actually a book coming out <laughs> that addresses uh, <laughs> questions like this in even more detail and uh, will provide resources and many, many, many more questions like that which we've already been talking about and, uh, and so much more. It's, uh, we, the tentative title is 100 Short Answers to Tough Questions for Christian Libertarians. That title might change, but uh, it is on the way and we hope to have it out this fall. The key thing really you need to know to is that where it's a hundred plus questions, actually. Yeah, that's that's yeah. where we and and it's going to equip you to answer these questions to people who ask them, and it might even help uh, answer and solidify some answers in your own mind. So we really thank you for sending in your questions. We are always fielding questions, and we often respond. We pretty much respond to everybody, you know, when we're able. Um, and usually within a couple days. So you can send us to, uh, let's see, podcast at libertarianchristians.com or you can just go to our contact page on libertarianchristians.com. Thanks for joining us. See you later. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Libertarian Christian Podcast. If you liked today's episode, we encourage you to rate us on Apple Podcasts to help expand our audience. If you want to reach out to us, email us at podcast at libertarianchristians.com. You can also reach us at LCI Official on Twitter. And of course, we are on Facebook and have an active group you are welcome to join. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Libertarian Christian Podcast is a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute, a registered 501c3 nonprofit. If you'd like to find out more about LCI, visit us on the web at libertarianchristians.com. The voiceovers are by Matt Bellis and Catherine Williams. As of episode 115, our audio production is provided by Podsworth Media. Check them out at podsworth.com. Hey, podcast listeners. Since you like listening to audio content, we wanted to let you know about a new audiobook titled Called to Freedom, Why You Can Be Christian and Libertarian. It's read by me, Jacqueline Isaacs, one of the contributing authors of the book, and every download helps to support the Libertarian Christian Institute. To learn more and to download the audiobook today, go to calltofreedombook.com.